You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Simon. Did you forget who you were for a minute there, Mark? I did a bit. I was expecting Lee to chip in, then I remembered he wasn't here. Oh, that's nice. We've only been talking on the Skype for 15 minutes, and you didn't even realise he wasn't there. You've <laughs> been slagging him off for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's just you. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, Richard Hogarth writes, Hey guys, loving the podcast. Oh, no, no, no. Let's come back to Richard in a minute. Right, I'm moving rapidly on. No, okay, since I've started with Richard, let's get on with it. Honestly, this is not the way to start a podcast, is it? No, it's going a off a tangent. It's like Lee's it still in the room. Yeah. Does it, does it remind you of anything like the Starburst Radio podcast, perhaps? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, loving the podcast. I thought I would bring up some thoughts on the 25th season, as it was the season that aired when I was born. For me, my love of the show started with the new series, but has grown to the old, and Sylvester McCoy was one of the first Doctors I saw. I have to say that season 25 was hit and missed. While I found Remembrance and Silver Nemesis to be okay at best, it was the Happiness Patrol and Greatest Show in the Galaxy that held my attention, and they are obviously signalling the way the show was going to change, but they just had an imagination the other stories lacked. And whilst I never got on board with Sylvester's Doctor and Ace, I can't help but treasure stories like Happiness and Greatest Show, because in a way, they shaped the new series. That's Richard Hogarth. Mm. And that, in a way, was a clue as to what we're going to be talking about, wasn't it, guys? Season 26. Bring yes! It Actually, I thought I might start with season 24. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, not really, but there is a point to be made there. In that, season 24 was Andrew Cartmel's getting his feet under the table season, and season 25 is his finding his feet season... And I guess season 26 is where he starts to run with it, right? Yeah. Lots of point... foot metaphors coming in here. Well, I decided to start with a foot metaphor and then I decided to go with it. <laughs> run <That's>... with it. <laughs> well, I was going to say that, but I just said run with it about a minute ago. <sighs> All right, whatever. bad form whatever. to repeat yourself, honestly. No, but the point, the more serious point I was going to make was, in a way, season 24 and season 25 to me, have a similar sort of relationship as season 10 and season 11 when we were talking about uh, Pertwee and I was saying that season 11 felt like a bit of a greatest hits. Mm-hmm. I, get the f- I get the feeling that season 25 is a retread of season 24 but with a little bit of celebration stuff sprinkled over it. Mm-hmm. For example, Dragonfire is the trad story in season 24. And then in season 25, you have another trad story, which is Remembrance, which has got anniversary dust sprinkled all over it. Mm, mm. And you've got the sort of... We won't talk about what's sprinkled all over Silver Nemesis. Well, I was about to. It's a family show. Gold dust, of course. (laughs) No, silver (laughs) dust is the silver anniversary. But before, Um. well, I was going to say, 
You've also got Happiness Patrol, which is kind of an analogous story, a metaphorical story, in the same way that Paradise Towers was. It is a very meta season, isn't it? There's lots mm. of referencing, but not in a sort of JNT earlier sort of mode where you had Bidmead, where they're shoehorning it in. It's more, yeah, a bit yeah. more general than that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of paying reference. Well, there's a lot of paying homage to earlier Doctor Who, but there's a lot of paying reference to other things as well. Mm. I mean, Dragonfire is outside our purview for this episode, but that is the most blatant example with all its references to Alien and uh, the Wizard of Oz and such like. But, you know, that doesn't stop there. And stories like The Happiness Patrol and Greatest Show in the Galaxy in particular are referencing, all of them, in fact, are referencing a lot of things outside of Doctor Who. The Remembrance of the Daleks uh, almost names Quatermass as an mm. influence on screen. It's referencing it, the show, yeah. but not in a sort of not trying to not do in that a way where you have continuity. To, yeah, you don't have to remember the things they're referencing. Yeah, exactly. So much as have a vague awareness of what mm. they're doing. Yeah, mm. and, and even if you miss it, you you haven't lost anything. Yeah. Uh, and then I was going to say, uh, Silver Nemesis feels to me a little bit like Delta and the Bannerman <laughs> in that, well, in that it's kind of supposed Simon, to be... Down. Yeah, but... <laughs> well, yeah, but Simon, you should agree with this and that you b- voted both of them bottom. Mm, I did. And mm. so Silver Nemesis and Delta and the Bannerman are both the sort of on-location romps with lots of different influences coming to play. I think Delta and the Bannerman does it a lot more successfully than Silver Nemesis. But, and seeing as we're at Silver Nemesis, we may as well carry on with it. And I'll just add that Greatest Show in the Galaxy, then, is almost like... Well, Greatest Show in the Galaxy is almost a story about being Doctor Who. Which, in the 25th anniversary year, if you've got three stories that reference not just stories from the previous season, but stories from before as well... And then a fourth story that is almost about the series itself. Well, to me, that's very Stephen Moffat. Yeah. That's very much what he's done with Series 7B. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly quirky season, isn't it? Mm, it is. And There's a line in... Um, I know we're supposed to be focusing more on Silk Nemesis. There's a line in Greatest no, Show okay. where uh, Wizkid says something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing slightly, I'm too young to remember the show when it was on in the early days and I appreciate it was a lot better back then yeah the as, a, as a little sort of wink to the camera which I thought was quite cool absolutely and that story's kind of full of that stuff really mm. but Silver Nemesis and talking about Stephen Moffat and not being that dissimilar from what's going on in season 25 there's the Doctor with a fez and a mop hmm yeah, there is that. It's about they all all they have got in common, really. No, I'm not so sure, but then we've not seen the anniversary special yet. Hmm. Uh, in the anniversary special that's coming up, we have, you know, one of the things we do know about it is we've got a scene where the TARDIS is hovering over Trafalgar Square in Nelson's Column. Hmm. Not so far removed from the Doctor paying a visit to Windsor Castle in the 25th anniversary story. No. So, you know. But his his... Right, Silver Nemesis, we fans love to hate Silver Nemesis because on the surface of it, it really isn't very good and the story threads don't tie together terribly well. But 
You've got to remember that Doctor Who's not really for the fans. It's for the general public. And as an anniversary story, Silver Nemesis has got the Queen and Windsor Castle. It's got the Cybermen, so a classic Doctor Who monster. It's got, you know, these uh, Nazis. So it kind of has something that the sort of general audience, the general viewing public at home can relate to in that sense. And also because Doctor Who's a time travel show and you know quite famously and quite frequently travels into history uh you know in latter years in the sort of pseudo historical sense where there's history and science fiction all mixed in together but then you know as an example of that in silver nemesis you've got lady painfort and you know her right hand man richard and speaking of which uh the actor who played richard died this week didn't he did he oh, oh shame. yeah uh gerard murphy yeah he did i think it was cancer i can't remember but yeah he died just a few days ago rather sadly and i say sadly because he was i think the best thing in i thought so as well i really enjoyed it yeah see the thing is i don't hate silver nemesis i don't think there's a lot to hate in it really no it's it's messy and it doesn't really hold together and i mean the one thing that gets me is for years and years, Silver Nemesis, I thought it was called that because of the Cybermen. Because I thought, oh, they're, they're silver. But then I thought, well, they're not. They did kind of look more silver, didn't they? The, the Mark Seven Cybermen or mm. whatever they were. Um, but Silver Nemesis wasn't the Cybermen. It was the Nemesis itself. Yeah. So you've immediately diluted the potency because anyone watching that as an anniversary story is going to expect the Cybermen to be central to it. So yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's like a side swipe. It's like going for the face and hitting the ear. It's not... It hasn't, it, <laughs> it, speaking of which, we'll come back to Ace and her uh, boomerang in a minute. But yeah. <laughs> mm. I think there's just too much going on in it. You've got... I think we probably mentioned this before when talking about this. You've got so many elements in there and I think it gets a bit confused. There's too much going on. You've got the Nazis, you've got the Cybermen, you've got Lady Painfort. And I think if you took out one of those elements, it might make for a better story. And probably the Cybermen would be the best element to take out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, everyone the likes... The Nazi plot doesn't have anywhere to go, but if you took the Cybermen out and gave them a bit more time, they would. It would work a lot better. Yeah, it, the, whole, the whole word. The word is diluted, isn't it? Everyone, mm. nobody can be potent because it's trying to do... It's not concentrating on any one element, really. But you can see why they did it. Villains from Earth, villains from space, and villains from the past mm. all coming together in a sort of celebrate celebratory story. I mean, in, and also, as well as the Windsor stuff, I don't really mind the Windsor stuff. I can mm. see why it's there, and I can see how that would be a hook for, uh, you know, your casual viewer. If you if you say to the casual viewer, oh, 25th anniversary of Doctor Who tonight, and guess what? They'll be paying a visit on the Queen. The casual viewer is going to tune in out of curiosity, aren't they? Mm, mm. So you can see why they did all those things. It's just that they don't really tie together. No, and, and firing arrows at parrots is not is a mistake. Yeah, there are lots of silly scenes in it, really. Yeah, and the arrow in the TARDIS door, and uh, usually involving arrows, really. And catapults. Yes. <laughs> it's, not you know, sure. it's not a bad idea on paper, I don't think. 
I think that's a lovely. I think that's a lovely idea of taking outside well, with a catapult. But um. yeah, but the point about the gold is it was supposed to be gold dust because it was supposed to clog up their system. Yeah, just by firing a gold coin at them, that shouldn't have any effect mm. at all. No, it's like werewolf, isn't it? It's that same. The silver bullet thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. Over time, it's got diluted. <laughs> mm, makes less sense. Yeah. No, it gets it gets confused over um, kind of Doctor Who lore, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Robert Holmes brings it in back in the 1970s as almost a kind of a joke to himself because he hated writing for robots. So he wanted to do something to show up how stupid the robots are. And actually, if you think about the gold dust idea clogging up their systems, it does make a fair bit of sense. So even though he's throwing something silly at the Cybermen, at least he's doing it in a relatively believable way it's a bit so like when he called the trashigs the you know named after dish rags that's <laughs> his that's his sense of humor at work the thing is Robert what makes Holmes. what makes the side men interesting is the human side or the or the yeah the, the flesh side so that's the thing i've got with the see. new ones the fact they've gone so robotic yeah well yeah. that's but that's been the case for a long time now it's not just in this new series but then oh, it's, right, it's a missed opportunity for Robert Holmes, though. It, yeah. He, of all writers, could have made them really, really interesting. Yeah, but he had no interest in them. That's the point. Yeah. He didn't know that they were, I don't think he even really realised they were supposed to have been human. He just mm. treated them as robots, really. Yeah, yeah. Him and Catherine Tate. Oh, no, that was Daleks, wasn't it? <laughs> that was Santarans, actually. Was it? <laughs> yeah, she had a problem with Santarans, didn't she? We've mentioned oh, this yeah. before. She thought the Sontarans, because yeah. the Sontarans were all so short, she just assumed they were just animatronics. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I've got that mixed up. See? See how things get mixed up over time? The yeah, memory cheats. Mm. But um, I th- I th- the central thing, the, the idea of getting this statue and then putting the arrow and then the bow together, I think that's a lovely idea, and that works well in yeah. a lot of classic stories. And I like that at the time. I, did, I like the theory... In most of the stories in this series, I like the theory behind them and I like the, like the ideas. It's it's the execution, isn't it? What would have worked really well was if you'd have sold that as a mystery. You've got this statue and you've got this arrow and you've got to put them together. And if you'd seen people tracking them down, uh, a bit like in Dragonfire where they're trying to track, dra- track down the Dragonfire yeah, when mm. they go into the sort of ice caves. If they didn't manage something like that with just a story with maybe Lady Painfort and the Doctor trying to track down the arrow to fit with a statue or whatever, that could have been a really interesting, almost slow-burning mystery story. Mm. And it could have also been a bit timey-wimey. You know, you could have been bringing the elements together at various places in history Mm. and made a story out of that. But of course, it's easy to say that in retrospect. The point is, they gave... Kevin Clark, the writer, they gave him the brief to do an anniversary story and to use lots of elements that he thought suited an anniversary story. Mm. So he thought of that idea for the story he was already writing rather than the other way around. So it's easy to say in retrospect, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, oh, he should have done this. But, you know, isn't it always easy to say those things with the benefit of hindsight? Isn't it? The other thing... Oh, sorry. Sorry, go on. No, go on, Mark. I was going to say, the other thing that really gets me with this story i don't know which order they were made in but the the ending is pretty much a retread of remembrance and in fact they even go to the point of saying oh you've done them over just like you did the daleks it's like yeah. oh god it's just 
really irritating. <laughs> you know, I had a problem with that then, but I don't now. I don't remotely have a problem with that now. How many other stories have finished in similar fashion? You know, people say, oh, Silver Nemesis is just a remake of Remembrance of the Daleks. Well, it's got two things in it that are like Remembrance of the Daleks. One, the Doctor's putting together, you know, this old ancient Gallifreyan weapon in order to, on the other hand, defeat one of his biggest enemies. Yeah. Well, that's fair enough. That's not a remake. That's a theme. I guess. It actually makes more sense in Silver Nemesis than it does in Remembrance. Hmm. It also makes sense that having done it once, he would do it again, wouldn't he? If he's got two big enemies, the Daleks and the Cybermen, Mm. if he can get away with putting together a weapon and destroying the Daleks, wouldn't he do the same with the Cybermen? I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Just not in the same series. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, but that's what I mean. You say that, but in the Key to Time series, in every episode in the Key to Time series, they're looking for a segment of the Key to Time. You know, it only. That's more of a theme, though, isn't it? So that's what I'm saying. This is like a theme. Oh, maybe. Yeah, okay. uh, You know, it is the 25th anniversary series. What better time to do. And you've only got four stories in total. And. You know, so you can only do this so many times. Mm. But what better time to have a theme of the Doctor tracking down his deadliest enemies and finishing them off for once and for all? Um, well, one thing I was going to say that it's, it's funny. Um, it's it's in later years, obviously, with the Muffet era. There's a lot more of a fantasy element. There's the the idea of people, um, even through uh, paradoxes staying alive, like the Doctor staying alive through a time paradox mm. because somebody remembers him. So there's that fantastical element, and I suppose you could call it magic. But one thing that really... When I had a quick look at Silver Nemesis before doing this podcast is just watching the first episode, all of a sudden they're doing magic to travel through time. And it really jarred on me. And I thought, mm. well, it shouldn't really jar because anything can happen in Doctor Who, but it, re- it did really jar on me. Um... I think it always does, but I think part of the reason for that is because, you know, you could say people shouldn't do it. Uh, have we lost Mark? No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Oh, no, sorry. It's just my... Uh, no, that's my fault. Forget I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Edit. <laughs> what I was going to say was, yeah, just because people do do science fiction in Doctor Who more doesn't mean they shouldn't do magic at all. And in fact, the programme would probably... In my view, I prefer it when the programme does magic, quite frankly. Mm. I like that. That's one of the things about the programme I like. And if you look at the programme, there's actually subtly a lot more examples of that than you really think there are. And so I don't consider it a problem when you get a one-off story doing magic. Yeah. I think the problem is when you get lots of stories in between that don't. Yeah, quite possible. I think it just doesn't seem to work. They drink a potion and they travel through time. Really odd. Very odd. Yeah, but then I mean, RTD does it again, doesn't he? In the um, in the end of time. Yeah, but you look three stories back at Dragonfire, and how does Ace get to uh, Ice World in the first place? Mm. You know, she uh, her science experiment goes wrong, and all of a sudden she's in a wormhole to the other side of the universe. You know, in the far distant future. I, I can just... accept that in a Douglas Adams kind of way. Oh, yeah, but then drinking a potion, can't you accept that in a, 
I don't know, H.P. Lovecraft kind of a way. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't. It's very odd, and I know that's that's down to me, but it just struck me as a bit silly, and um, I don't know. I don't know. It's it literally, you know, you say about the sonic screwdriver being a magic wand that you wave at things and magic things happen, but you kind of accept that in the same way as you accept Jamie and the magic torch. You know, it's 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 that there's a certain amount of science to it. It's a magic piece of technology. Well, I don't consider the sonic screwdriver remotely magic to me. It's just like the doctor's version of a mobile phone or a tablet or mm, something. Mm. It's just a multifunctional device. Yeah. Right, Simon, your next job for the Starburst magazine is to do a uh, Jamie and the Magic Torch, Matt Smith mashup. Oh. Have you not seen this already, Mark? What? Has that been done, is it? <laughs> no, I'm talking about your illustration of William Hartnell with the sonic screwdriver. Oh, yes, yes. Not quite Jamie and the Magic Torch, but <laughs> that's what we were... Uh... Oh, right, okay. Uh, anyway, should we move on to the next story? Go on, then. Which is actually Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Yeah. I, I should point out to listeners, most any non-regular listeners, that what we do when we do these... Uh, episodes looking at a particular season is we vote for the stories in our order of preference and then do them in reverse order so that we start with our least favorite and work our way towards our favorite so uh, the story we voted last was silver nemesis and third or second last is greatest show in the galaxy very very quickly before we move off for silver nemesis no, the last on, thing, then, yeah. um you're saying about how it's kind of they're trying to aim to a broader audience and not necessarily always aim it at fanboys and what have you um we had Neil Perryman on from The Wife in Space a while ago and his wife is not a Doctor Who fan and there's some classic stories she really loves but um, she rated it 0 out of 10 and called it Silver Bollocks. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I th- I'm saying you can see what they were trying to do yeah. but I don't think particularly successfully. Yeah. I think no. <clears throat> it was a case of throw all the elements at it and... The writer just didn't manage to work them together well enough, perhaps. Do you know what was really funny was, um, again, as part of my homework, I, I, I read a quick synopsis of the story, and it was like, the Doctor nips back to 16, whatever it is, no, 1863, is it, or something like that? Uh, yeah, something like that, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. 1663, he nips, back, he nips back to the past, then he nips back to yeah. the future, then he nips back to the past, then he nips back to the future, then he nips back to the past. Then he nips back to the future. And it is literally like that. Every other line was like that. Um, yes. Anyway, let's move on. Sounded like a synopsis of The Girl in the Fireplace. Ooh. Contentious. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, we've got a massive email. So before we go on to the greatest show in the galaxy, mm. I'll read another one. Um, this one is from, oh, the Reverend Hello Poro. He says, uh, oh, I'll tell you what, I should save this one. Oh, I've sod it, I've started now, so I'm really buggering this up as far as the emails are concerned, aren't I? Hang on, what, I should sod, have stuck this one in next before we talk about... You just said, and you're talking to Did the I? reverend. Yeah. Yeah, but he's that kind of a reverend, isn't he? He reverend. Says, hey. hey. Oh. Did you butt in then with all that spiel about sodding and buggering just so that you could come up with that punchline? No, it was just a happy accident. Ah, oh, brilliant. 
Morning all. Firstly, a big thanks. Due to my hilarious input into your podcast, my comedy skills have been noted. I have been asked to be a judge in the Hull's New Comedian competition. So thanks for the exposure and opportunities. Who knows, I'll be having sci-fi comedy songs played on Mitch Ben's podcast next. I actually suspect you might be telling the truth there, so if there is an actual Hull's New Comedian competition (laughs) and anybody who's listening to the podcast is in the area of Hull and hears about it coming up, go along. And if you see somebody dressed as a reverend on the uh, judging panel there, you'll know that's the Reverend Hullo Borrow. Anyway, I love the House Martins. The House Martins? Yeah. Came from The band? Yes. Oh, yeah, of course Uh... they did. They're only the fourth best band in... Right, okay, enough with the whole... Anyway, says the Reverend, if that wasn't enough to make Simon drop his colouring book, this email (laughs) is a sensible one. Your Dalek podcast had an oxymoronic opinion of Destiny of the Daleks. Actually, was Lee on that episode? No. He wasn't, so I don't think it was that moronic at all. He says, although the disco robots are easy to mock, you did all seem to enjoy it. It led me to rewatch it the other day, and I have to say it was as corking as I remember, and I have fond memories of this one from the first time around. I watched it the other day as well. It's fantastic. I loved it. Yeah, I think it's a savagely underrated story, Destiny of the Daleks. Anyway, this in turn made me think of your What If podcast, Destiny of the Daleks. Two logical fighting forces up against each other. Instead of the Movellans, why not the Cybermen, giving us our first classic series Dalek Cyber mashup? I would also have renamed the episode Scissors, Paper, Stone. Well, I'm off to sharpen my wit, and I'll be back soon. And don't worry, my growing fame will never be too big to write contributions to your podcast. And then what a relief. Says, yeah. <laughs> and then he says at the end, revs up. That should be my catchphrase. <laughs> And there's an email from the Reverend. We like Bless the Reverend. Him. It is. Well, the other well, we thing, like everybody who writes in. The other thing with the Mavellans is they introduced Fake Tan to television years before Kilroy. <laughs> and moving swiftly along with our opinion of the greatest show in the galaxy. Do you know, going back to first watching these stories, because mm. I think one of the reasons why this is a slightly more interesting episode, a slightly more interesting series for us, a season for us to look at, it's because we do all remember this from the first time around, don't we? Yeah. Well, I watched this for the first time in about 20 years today. Greatest show? Yeah. But you remember it from before, right? Yeah, I don't think I had particularly great memories of it. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, do you remember the season being on? Mm. Remembrance well, of the Well, bear in mind, I'd only just come back to the fold because I'd been so disgusted with Time of the Rani that I'd abstained for a while. Oh. Yeah. How old so I think you? Remembrance was the first one I watched after that little brief gap. Yeah, I think quite a few people did that. Mm-hmm. So Remembrance, well, we'll come to Remembrance yeah. in a minute. So you don't remember Greatest Show particularly fondly? I remember bits of it. I'd, maybe I just wasn't sort of uh, reading into the story as much as I could now, seeing it with more slightly more grown-up eyes, but... Um, I I quite enjoyed it, watching it all these mm. years later. Um, I think it's a quite an interesting story. I think the the setting's really good. I know they they had to shoot it the way they did because of was there some sort of strike or something going on and they couldn't use the studio. Asbestos. They couldn't oh, go to the studio because they were ripping it. out the asbestos. 
That's right. So due to circumstances, they're they're having to shoot in a different way, and I think it works. Mm, I do. I think they did a really good job of it. Yeah. Mm. And clowns are creepy. I mean, I'm especially when they're being played by Ian Reddington. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's he's to, oh he used to creep me out in EastEnders. Oh yeah, he's got one of those faces, hasn't he? Yeah, he he's brilliant. He had a small part in uh, Inspector Morse once, just as an estate agent. And, you know, Inspector Morse is written with a good deal of uh, background for all the characters. Mm. And I think he's just in this one scene, or maybe two, but he's kind of a slightly dodgy estate agent. And as played by Ian Reddington, brilliant. Him and David Thewlis have a kind of a, a bit of a line in playing really nasty pieces of work, don't they? Yeah, I guess they do. But the rest of greatest show is pretty fantastic as well can I, mostly can i just say well, i was watching uh sorry who was that actor you were just saying about yeah it, david hewless yeah and... it, I, I i noticed that there's a similarity between him and mm. um oh what's that character in space played by david williams uh oh god volva volva yeah I don't know why, <laughs> but I did anyway. Yeah, mm, it could yes. have been David Williams as well playing the clown. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes, possibly, possibly. Mm. I'm rather glad it was Ian Reddington. <laughs> truth be told, now I've got a vision of Ian Reddington going finished. <laughs> oh, Anyone listening I'm who sorry. has never I'm seen sorry. Spaced, honestly, you'll have no idea what's going. On. No, One thing that I love about this story is the fact that... Next week on the Simon Pegg podcast, we'll be talking about the long game. <laughs> Thank God they get rid of Kef McCulloch for this story, because oh that was one of the things God. he used to do my head in. And Mark Ayres, I think it is, it steps in, does a great job, and I think the music is so much better. It is. Oh, is it Mark real, Ayres on this story? Yeah. Some real yeah. techno delights going on in there. It's, mm. You know, stop, stop trying to make electronic synthesizers make the sound of real instruments. There's no point. Mm. That's why you get those rubbish paradiddles because it's trying to make the sound of real drums. So what does he do? He gets electronic instruments and make makes them make electronic sounds and it sounds brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that made a huge difference to my enjoyment of the programme. There's some lovely synth swells and things in there, you know, and it's what it mm. needs. It does actually add some grandeur to the show. What might Remembrance of the Daleks have done instead, though? Because, you know, that was that music was very much of its time. and Well, we'll come to Remembrance in the Dal- of the Daleks in a minute, but I think the production of that's very much of its time as well. Mm. But back to Greatest Show, I remember as a kid watching this season and being moderately impressed with Remembrance... Not very impressed at all with the Happiness Patrol. Extremely unimpressed with Silver Nemesis. And for the second year in a row, I think it was the last story in the series that impressed me the most. Mm. Dragonfire felt like Doctor Who was getting back to its roots a bit. Mm. And then this following series, Greatest Show, didn't feel so much like it was getting back to its roots, but felt like it was finding its feet in terms of where it maybe wanted to go. And I think I probably did, well, I know I did, I did get some of the metaphorical stuff that was going on in the story. And I, you know, apart from a few production things, and 
you have to forgive the production. If you can't give the production things in Doctor Who, you know, classic Doctor Who, if you can't forgive the production, then you yeah. really are watching the wrong program, mm-hmm. aren't you? Mm-hmm. So yeah. apart from a few production niggles, the only thing that really let me down with Greatest Show in the Galaxy was the fourth episode, which I thought was a bit of a mess. Mm. Oh, where he's doing all the uh, the magic tricks and things like that. Yeah, just didn't really pull it off. You love magic in Doctor Who, Joe. You just said that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's very funny. But, you know, the point is kind of, if these people mm. who are, you know, withholding over this psychic circus and need constantly entertaining in order to be fed and so line up a constant stream of people to come in and try and entertain them. Mm-hmm. And, and if these people are gods... And, you know, it's stated there in the text that they are gods. Then you'd expect a little bit more than, you know, a card trick and some playing of the spoons. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? What that episode really needed was for Sylvester McCoy to go in and do something spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and then at the end, you've got some polystyrene or alabaster or whatever rocks falling apart and that's kind of it and i just mm-hmm. kind of felt that last episode all that promise from the first three episodes and you know and I, like i say i was aware of a lot of the metaphorical stuff that was going on mm-hmm. so at the end of that story <laughs> i needed something either spectacular or something really clever it went you've got bit... to say when he walks out of the big tent and the explosion goes off behind him that is a very cool moment it is yeah but that's three episodes early that's how yeah. you needed to finish the story, isn't it? I suppose. Mm. I mean, that would have been a brilliant image right at the end of episode four for him walking away from the psychic circus. Mm. Mm. As it was, it just seemed an explosion out of nothing. That that ending with the uh, the crumbling stone and everything, I just I was looking at it and I was thinking, it's like Power Rangers. It looks like Power Rangers <laughs> with everything wobbling and, and falling apart. And um, yeah, anyway. I, I think really they chose to make them the gods of Ragnarok so that Sylvester McCoy could roll his R's even more than usual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, dear. Gods. Why do they have to involve gods? This this is my big issue with um, this era, is that I've got nothing against big ideas, but all this idea about the... Do- Which story was it where the Doctor was supposed to be Silver a god? Silver Nemesis. Silver Nemesis, yeah. Oh, dear. Uh, except they, of course, that's only in the VHS version because they cut some of that dialogue out mm. on the televised broadcast version. So it's not quite as bad. I don't like that. I think if you're going to see, this was the thing. Andrew Cartmel, and I'm sure a lot of this is him talking retrospectively about it and perhaps and perhaps being able to give the ideas more clarity than they really ever had. Andrew Cartmel seemed to think that after their sort of earlier mid-80s, the Doctor needed some of the mystery putting back in. Mm. In much the same way as Stephen Moffat has perhaps been attempting to do of late. But whereas Stephen Moffat, in my mind, seems to have grasped the idea that putting the mystery in means keeping things from the audience, in the sort of Cartmel version of this putting the mystery back into Doctor Who, he seems to be way too specific about it. Yeah. Mm. All this stuff about the Doctor being around, 
you know, with Omega and Rassilon when they discovered time travel and created the black hole that powered the source of it all yeah. and all this kind of stuff and this Doctor being a god and the Doctor being the guy who sent these weapons from Gallifrey out in the first place so that he could collect them all these hundreds of or thousands of years later. It's all a bit too specific. That's not putting the mystery back in Doctor Who. That's just adding layer upon layer upon layer of non-mystery to the character to make him even less mysterious than he was before. So it undermines all the previous stories as well, because you think, oh yeah, all this whole time he knew exactly what he was doing. There's no fun in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You can't relate to that character. You no. Can, you can just watch it... what he does. That's You're just watching what he does. You don't sort of think, you know, you think he's never really in danger because at the end of the day, he's more powerful than anyone else anyway. Mm. You know, there's it's been compared to... This sort of, they call it the Cartmel Master Plan, of course it was never called that at the time. But this whole thing about putting the mystery back into the Doctor by making him more manipulative, which comes across just as clearly but on a more personal level in the following series, the following season. But there's always a comparison drawn between that and Patrick Troughton, and of course, specifically, we're talking Tomb of the Cybermen, where Troughton opens the tombs for the archaeologists, thus setting the whole thing into motion, which is what causes, you know, him to have to defeat the Cybermen. And, you know, did he actually do all that deliberately? Well, probably A, Patrick Troughton's Doctor didn't do all that quite as deliberately <laughs> as we perhaps think he did now. But B, the point is, he didn't go to Telos with the intention of doing that. He just did that when he arrived and saw what was unfolding. Mm. Whereas, of course, with the Sylvester McCoy Doctor... He's travelling around the galaxy, or Earth at any rate, because all these stories seem to be set on Earth, all the ones that fall under this category. He's travelling around the Earth with Ace, setting all these things up for himself. Yeah. Mm. The, again, the mystery is stripped away. You know, if the Doctor arrived in the middle of a mysterious situation, great. But if the Doctor arrives in the middle of a situation of his own making, you know, it just... It, it, it kind of... It's like shooting yourself in the foot. Mm. Mm. Anyway, Mark, greatest show. Uh, apart from Ian Reddington, mm. I don't know. What did you make of uh, Mags and the whole I Captain thought the cast Cook. was pretty strong in this one. You had yeah. um, Peggy Mount, for an actress of her standing at the time, has got a relatively small part. but A little cameo, really. Yeah, but that, that was quite cute. Um, yeah. And you had, um, I forget the actor's name now, the guy that T. played P. Adrian McKenna. Just no, Mark, the guy who played Adrian Mark, though, Yes, that's the yeah. guy. Yeah, and yeah. Um, he was pretty famous at the time. He was, yeah. He? yeah, he was pretty awful. It strikes me, you talked about, Simon brought up um, David Bolliams earlier, and it strikes me the captain, the character of the captain, it resonates a bit with Gibbis, the character that uh, David Bolliams plays later on in the in the new series, Ooh, where he's good quite point, happy Mark. to just kind of set up his fellow... Um, yeah, he's quite happy for everybody captive. else to shoulder yeah. all the uh, responsibilities, <laughs> yeah. really, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, but that's yeah, an interesting some interesting comparison. stuff going on there. And they, I thought the transformation when um, she turns into the werewolf, spoilers, um, was really good, actually. It's quite quite a, mm. a well-realised moment. Mm. It's something very different. I, didn't, I wasn't particularly fond of that myself because I think I was just the wrong age for that kind of thing at that time when it was first broadcast. I think I was just turning 20 when Greatest Show of the Galaxy was on. Mm -hmm. So I was probably just a bit too old to appreciate some of more of that end of stuff. 
But obviously, like I say, I appreciated the more metaphorical aspect of the story, really. Mm-hmm. Did anyone... Which wasn't just... Sorry, go on. Go on, it's all right. No, I was going to say, did anyone like the Ringmaster? Because the moment he looked at the camera and said the greatest show in the galaxy were, I hated that. The first time I saw it, no. I hated it when I looked at it this afternoon. Do you know what, though? I don't, I don't think I did. I think... I didn't think they did it brilliantly. I didn't think it was particularly well realised. But I appreciated what they were doing. And I think I I liked them for trying it. Mm. Mm. And I quite liked the idea of having that character. Because like I say, I was watching it on a sort of metaphorical level. Not just for the... This is a Doctor Who story about Doctor Who. But also all the other stuff going on as well. This whole, you know, entertain me and, you know the entertainment is the lifeblood of these creatures i like that anyway and i've liked that in other things so i think that whole thing with the ringmaster yeah i i like the fact that he was there as the cheesy ringmaster welcoming and entertaining people but only welcoming welcoming them in in order to feed them to his paymasters as mm-hmm. it were i like that idea and you're right they didn't bring it off quite so well as they maybe could have done I, I can even but kudos to the, them for trying yeah i can i can forgive the wrapping to an extent because we all know yeah. that it's always a reflection of what was going on at the time and mm. that kind of grandmaster flash wrapping was what was happening at the time and it's you know thank goodness it was marquez doing the backing for it because it could have yeah, been really bad <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yes no I, I found it quite enjoyable um i think you can enjoy it on a certain level. You don't have to pick up on all the nuances and all the the meta stuff, and you can just sit down and enjoy it as a a good old-fashioned romp. I think unlike Happiness Patrol and Paradise Towers, both of which you could only truly appreciate if you were prepared to switch off your sort of realistic side of your brain Mm. and fully engage with the sort of metaphorical or even fairly cartoon you know both of those two physically resemble cartoons more than they do sort of film series which of course doctor who wasn't by this time because of the budget but you know what i'm saying Mm. so i think whereas with happiness patrol and paradise towers you can only engage with them in that one way i think with greatest show and probably because of the fact that there was this asbestos thing going on and they had to film it all in tents and in a quarry and everything else I think you can engage with it in both ways. And that very definitely works in its favour. It's funny you say about Stephen Moffat um, very much taking on the format of annual stories. Mm. Whereas those take on the visual <laughs> aspects. Aspect of it, of yeah. Annual yeah, stories. They do. yeah. Which, you know. Yeah. It's, it's... And I like that. I, at the time, I didn't like. I did like Greatest Show, but I hadn't liked Paradise Towers or Happiness Patrol. But now, Paradise Towers and the Happiness Patrol are... Well, we'll come to Happiness Patrol in a minute, but I love Paradise Towers as well. And I know it's hugely, deeply flawed, but I still do love it, and I still think it sits way above any of the stories from the Colin Baker era. But let's move on. We'll have another quick email before we move on. And, uh, oh, this is a very quick one, but it'd be interesting to see what either of you say about it. Hmm. Uh, it's from a guy called Ian Martin. I, Unless I'm mistaken, I think it's the first time he's written in. He says, Hi there, any chance of a New Adventures episode? For me, the Virgin era was the bestest. 
Thanks for your podcast. It's always entertaining and is accessible to ferocious spods and casual fans alike. <laughs> Do you know, I've never read one new adventure. So I would have to drop out of that or mm. somebody give me a mission and get me to read one. Mm. Oh, that's an interesting thought because I've only read a handful myself. <coughs> I know Lee's read quite a few. Mark, you... I've only read a few. Um, mm. Although, having said that... Um, Probably shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to plug another podcast. There's one called the Doctor Who Book Club podcast, and right, well, that's they focus great. on and, those uh, stories. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, no, what I was going to say was, well, I did, I did write back to him and say probably not because none of us are very well versed in them. Mm. But you know, what, actually, why don't we cover that subject by just talking about the books we have read and our ideas of the series as a whole? And possibly even get a guest in for that episode, so maybe there'll be five of us or four if one of us can't make it. Expanded universe episode, as such. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. We could do. I think we could do one on the books and one on the audios. Mm. I think there's enough to cover there. Yeah, I think there's enough to to have separate ones on each one if you wanted to. Mm. But perhaps not new adventures and the Eighth Doctor. Mm. We do all the books in one yeah, podcast. Yes. Mm. So. Yeah, I think we should definitely do that before the end. Because I, I can talk about K9 and the Beasts of Vega. Well, we're glad about that. And we'll <laughs> talk about Remembrance of the Daleks now, shall we? <laughs> yes, please. Come on. I wasn't intending to go back quite that far, Simon. I was talking really about the new fiction that filled in the gap between McCoy and Eccleston. Okay. Uh, but Remembrance <laughs> of the Daleks, speaking of which, that's a nice segue because, mm. uh, you know, the new adventures famously were inspired by the novel of Remembrance of the Daleks to a large degree. Because it does and have so, um, a, a reputation as being one of the, the best of the novels, wasn't it? Mm, because it fleshes it out so much more. And also because it does, because of course it does on the TV, but in the novel, because it fleshes out and covers what's on TV, it's like a template because it covers this manipulative Time Lord God Doctor, as it were. So there is that aspect to it. And of course that's in remembrance as well. You know, it, he in in the way he sets up the entire thing in order to destroy the Daleks. Mm. Uh but we have voted it second, so we must have liked it. <coughs> uh, in retrospect though, I did if you remember rightly, at the last minute I sort of mm. said, Oh, can I swap? Can I swap Greatest Show with Remembrance? Hmm. But and of course, I voted Great Show above <laughs> Remembrance too. Mm. So, Mark, this is entirely down to you. All my fault. <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> In effect, then, Greatest Show and Remembrance have kind of tied. Look, my memory of Remembrance, quickly before I come back to you two, then, is uh, the trailers with the Daleks and me thinking after Dragonfire, oh, this is Doctor Who going back to being what Doctor Who does. And then when the story comes on, uh, well, three things about it. One, I thought the Daleks looked hideously cheap, wobbling around the pavements, and some of those battle sequences yeah. where they've got a bunch of Daleks in a very small space shooting at each other and missing. That was awful. But, having said that, it was made up for by the dialogue, which was quick and snappy and memorable, which was so unlike any of the dialogue that I seemed to think we'd had since Tom Baker had been the Doctor, although I would say, uh, you know, now I would say, but the Christopher Bailey stories have it as well. So I was impressed with the dialogue, and 
to a certain extent because of that, the characterization. And the other thing about it really is the amount of location work and the amount of ideas that play in the story and how interesting some of those ideas were. I don't think it all quite tied up neatly and it's not a story I revisit so very much now. But at the time, I did on balance enjoy it a lot more than I had been doing Doctor Who of late and I was glad to see it as this reinvention of the show. Mm. So, Mark and Simon, what did you think of Remembrance? At the time, it... um, even just the uh, the the, uh, the death effects showing the skeleton as people got mm. shot, because <clears throat> I remember seeing the trailer for it and thinking, oh, wow, they've sorted it all out. And then, though, just to briefly interject, in that later scene where the Daleks are shooting each other, you know, the ray bolts they shoot, mm. although they're slightly more nicely done, they still are just sort of blue flashes on the screen, really, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They are. Yeah. But um, Anyway, sorry, I cut in there. Carry on. No, that's all right. Um, so the execution in that respect, <laughs> execution, um, was, was nice and a bit more slick. What what got me down and what gets me? I probably enjoyed the story more at the time than I do now, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, because it was Daleks and Davros turned up eventually. Um, you know, now I don't. I I I like stories where Davros doesn't turn up because it makes yeah, more of an event when he does. Um, it's a disappointment when that thing opens and he's inside. Isn't yeah, it? the old. Um, we had an air freshener. It was like it, like a globe air freshener. I do remember one of the science fiction stories, possibly Blake Seven, where they actually used that air freshener yeah, as right, yeah. as a control pad. You literally slid the thing but out and pressed buttons. That, you know, that design was based on the Emperor Dalek from the nineteen sixties yeah. yeah. TV comics. Yeah, and I think that am I right that those TV comics preempted the air freshener anyway? Yes, very they probably. Did. They did. So probably the air freshener would have come after that design. So comparing that design to the air, air freshener always seems a bit wrong-headed to me. Yeah. But there you go, everybody does it. Well, there we go. Yeah. Um, I, just, I quite enjoyed it at the time. Um, I don't take it so seriously as a Dalek story these days. Because it's got that... Funny you were saying about the... Oh, uh, Delta and the Bannerman. I've got, that, I've got the words out. Um <laughs> What gets me about that is that you've got this locality to the story where the whole thing happens around a campsite. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the same thing with Remembrance of the Daleks where the whole thing seems to happen around a school. And um, one thing that the new series seems to manage, and yes, admittedly, effects have a lot of you know, influence on that, that you get the impression that there's more going on and all the TV reports, there's more going wrong. It's a, it's a bigger event. <clears throat> With this one, though, you just feel like the whole thing's, the Daleks have invaded a school. Yeah. Yes, there is that. <coughs> Sorry, I'm choking you. Um, it's all right. But, um, yeah, that that's why I don't find it quite so convincing and it, it all seems so localised that it all seems, you know, when the special weapons Dalek turns up, you sort of think, hmm. I don't know. I, I still think it's the funniest Dalek ever. <laughs> Essentially a, dar- a gun on wheels. I just wonder what he does when he goes home at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, this is it. I said that before, didn't I? He's got a little Xbox in there or something. Yeah. yeah. This... 
<laughs> yeah, all, all the other Daleks have a joke with him. You know, he sort of turns up for a meal at the end of the day, and they sort of say, "So, uh, what do you do? You in- yeah, what do you do then?" <laughs> Special weapons, Dalek, Gov. Yeah, yeah, oh, we yeah. guessed that. Here's a bowl of soup for you. What are you going to hold it with? Hey, hey, yeah. what are you going to hold it with? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. That special, the special weapons Dalek, or the least useful Dalek in the history of Daleks, mm. seems as all the Daleks have special weapons on them. But there you go. Yes. Mark, remembrance yes. of the Daleks. Mm, well, I'm sure it's been said before, but every Doctor, every actor who gets to play the Doctor, they don't really consider themselves the Doctor until they've been in an episode with Michael Sheard. <laughs> oh, we see what you did there. Yeah. Uh, now he's brilliant. I'd love seeing him in all the old classic Doctor Who's. Um, I really like the story. This was the one that brought me back to the fold. Um, I was so disappointed with the previous season. Well, mainly with Time and the Rani because I didn't bother to watch any of the others after that. Um, I just really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great story. Um, you were saying earlier about what could they have done with the music in Remembrance. For as much as Simon doesn't like um, the show we will no longer mention, because he's already mentioned it a couple of times and I think he felt physically sick, (coughs) Delta and the Bannerman, Um, they actually proved there that they could do kind of retro music relatively well. Um, I don't know why they couldn't have gone for a more sort of 60s style soundtrack. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting Ditch the synths, get some Rickenbackers out, jobs are good. Trouble is, it's the Daleks, and you kind of feel you've got to do something relatively futuristic for the Daleks, I suppose, don't you? I guess. I guess. So, drum machines and synthesized orchestral stabs well, and stuff. they're only four years away from Sid Barrett. They could have stuck in some psychedelic noodlings over the top <clears> as well. Yeah, yeah. I think they got the timing right for the, do- to the Dalek to go up the stairs. That worked well. I thought that was a really yeah. good cliffhanger. That was, that was a good choice. It was so much choice. better than... It did a couple of years earlier, or in Revelation. Mm, mm. Mm. But they really bodged the effect. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I, I think it's a great story for Ace as well. Yeah, I've <clears> never <throat> been keen on Ace, though. I've barely mentioned her so far in this podcast, have I? There's I've that, noticed. There's that odd yeah. section where all of a sudden she lets her hair down, and all of a sudden she's sultry and trying to be sexy. And um, Sophie is lovely. She's, and I think she's one of those ladies who's actually nicer now than she was then. Um, but I just don't think it worked because we got so used to no. her being very kiddish, and then mm. all of a sudden, and they, they were trying to bring this in, weren't they? They were trying to turn it yeah, into some it kind in of coming Fenric of age. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you say, it goes deeply against the way the character's been portrayed. The trouble is with Ace is I don't think there's a realistic line of dialogue coming out of her mouth. And so when you try and give her sort of more rounded, more human things to do, it just grates so badly against everything else that the character's been up until that point. Mm. It just comes across as a gimmick, uh, you know. I know what you mean. I suppose it's because they're trying to make her more street. They can't Mm. use words that probably kids her age would have used, so they have to put in stuff like bilge bag and... (laughs) other other classics yeah yeah but even the sort of wicked and ace you know if you're going to do that Mm. don't do it at all do it with the everybody else in the whole i mean even in 1988 wicked was a bit Mm. naff really wasn't it but everybody else across the whole of that era has got some great dialogue Mm. 
you look at the story we're about to talk about next, the Candyman and some of the other characters in that story have some great dialogue, some great put-downs, and some great scathing, cynical, sarcastic dialogue. If Ace had been given more than more of that kind of stuff, mm. and they'd left the faux swearing yeah, out yeah. altogether, that character would have worked so much better. Okay, she's streetwise and she's savvy, but make her savvy by making her intelligent and giving her dialogue that proves it. So it's another connection with Grange Hill, isn't it? it? You set the whole story yeah. in a school, which made me think Grange Hill. Then you've got Michael Sheard, Mr. Bronson. So yeah. I thought, yeah, Grange Hill. And then, but. In Grange Hill, <laughs> the big joke, isn't it? It's the one school in the world where the kids don't swear. But actually, mm. you don't miss it in Grange Hill. They write mm. it in such a way that you don't really pick up on it. Because they're quite no, clever absolutely. with the insults and they're quite clever with and the dialogue. And of course, so. in Grange Hill, everybody's on the same level. They're all kids. They're all the same age. And if they're all talking to each other in that way, mm. then you get used to it. And that's how those characters interact. Mm. But then when you put those words into the mouth of a character who's inter interacting with a different kind of a character, she just looks even more out of place than she would have done before. No, I think, just quickly rewinding to uh, Greatest Show, her reaction to the clown was pretty spot on. Mm, yeah. I thought that was nice, actually, that bit where they're standing by the ticket office and, and he's poking his face through and smiling at her and it's just horrible. Just horrible. And her reaction at first, it looks a little bit, ooh, she looks a bit awkward the way she's standing, but actually she's just looking really uncomfortable. And she gets yeah. that right. <clears throat> I think in Remembrance, one thing that worked really well was the subplot with the traitor whose racist mum runs the uh, B&B. I thought that worked really well. Yeah, I'm not too sure on that, to be honest myself. Mm. I can see what they were doing, and... Fair play to them for putting it in because it fits with the rest of what's going on. But it, I don't know, there's something in the way it's written or something in the way it's played that makes it feel makes it feel like what it is, something they've put in in order to underline a point. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so that, not really quite sure. I read something one. about, because there's that sign-up, isn't there, that says no coloureds. And I read mm. something somewhere that they re they regretted not having Ace just rip it down. Mm. Um, so they were, yeah, they were trying to make a point, and actually, they didn't think they went far enough with it. But that's life, I guess. Yeah, uh, and it's got Pamela Salem in it. So, what's not to love? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether it's conscious that she looked like Barbara, but she really did look like Barbara. It's quite confusing. In some yeah, I never really picked up on that. Mm. I, I think you're right. Actually, she does a bit. It's the haircut. Yeah. Um, should we have another email? Yeah, go on then. Right, this is uh, from Jake Dinkel. I, at least I'm hoping I've got his name right now because he tells me how to pronounce it in a second. He says, hey guys, I haven't written to you in a while, but I have been listening to and enjoying every episode, so thank you for your work. First of all, my name is pronounced in the German way. Think Steve Urkel. Is that right? Is it Steve Urkel and therefore Jake Dinkel? Okay. If I knew who Steve Urkel was, I might be able to tell you. Or is it Steve Urkel, so it would be Jake Dinkel? See, he's not helped at all. He's told us how to pronounce his name, and we still can't do it. See, I <laughs> assume, because it's one L, it would be Dinkel, where if it's two Ls, it would be Dinkel. But I don't uh, know. Who knows? I think that might be Please, right. Please, Jake, put us out of our misery. Once oh, and yeah. for all. 
This is awful. You've made things worse. Yeah, you need to... Anyway. Give it to us oh, go phonetically. Yes. He says, Secondly, I recently posted a thought on a message board that received mixed reactions, and I would like to hear your takes on this. He says... <clears throat> This year's Christmas special will also be the 800th broadcast episode of Doctor Who. These types of milestones weren't a big deal in the classic series. It only took 26 months for the first Doctor to get to his 100th episode. But with the number of episodes we get currently, it would take a decade before we hit the 900th episode. Therefore, do you think that this type of milestone should be something that is celebrated? I know that we're getting a regeneration this Christmas, and of course the anniversary special just before, but it certainly wasn't planned to coincide with the 800th episode. So, basically he's saying, should there be something in the Christmas special to mark the fact that it's 800? Hmm. I don't know, I'm not not necessarily in the same way as they had a bus with a 200 on it. I was going to say, they did something similar, didn't they, in Planet of the Dead? Hmm, but, I don't know, I can see what he means. They did it at midnight as well, didn't they, with a a subtle reference. I think there could be a, a mention in the credits at the end. Or maybe at the start, a big 800 come up on the screen. But they, that's that's all that needs to be said. It just needs to be like a little tick that says, my God, they've reached 800 episodes. That's something else. Hmm. But I don't see it being a reason to put together a, a special story, personally. I think I think the fact it's a Christmas special is going to be enough to make it yeah, a big story. Yes. Especially if with the regeneration. Oh, yeah. 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 Wait, no, I, I can't, you know, I can't see how realistically they could, to be honest. I mean, it's nice. I mean, we should celebrate the fact that it's got to 800 episodes, mm. but perhaps that's something that should happen off screen. And it's that, like something in Doctor Who magazine. And that's that yeah. thing, isn't it? Is Sharda included? Is whatever included? Is the, the episode they never made of Planet of the Giants included? I don't know. Uh, well, I'd assume he means 800 broadcast episode. Oh, okay. But I couldn't swear to it, so who knows? No. Age, it's just a number. That's what they say, isn't it? Mm. So another quick one before we talk Happiness Patrol, because I did have a huge sheath of uh, messages and stuff here tonight. Uh, from Go Declan on May, just on Facebook. <laughs> he says, your sheath. Oh, yeah. What? Declan uh, <clears throat> He says, Dear guys, an absolutely superb episode, as always, and just another reason to suggest or even nominate the Blue Box podcast as the must-listen Doctor Who podcast for anyone remotely interested in Doctor Who, casual or hardcore. In the DW podcast hierarchy or placement, you guys are season seven. And when by that, he means the new series. Aww. His favourite ever Doctor Who series, both parts A and B. Radio Free Scarrow would be season six, his second favourite season. And The Memory Cheats is season one, with the Doctor Who podcast as Dimensions in Time. Keep up the great work, he says. I've no idea what he means by any of that, but no. I thought I might be I really like Dimensions in Time. It's awesome. <laughs> well, of course it is. It's got 17 Doctors in it. I want to see Ian Levine's 90-minute special version. Actually, you know, Peter Capaldi's a huge fan of Doctor Who. I wonder if he was in one of those monster costumes in Dimensions in Time. He might have been. He might well have been. He was in the Tetrap. Yeah. Um... We should talk about the Happiness Patrol, guys. Go on, then. Should we just say how wonderful it is and leave it at that? Well, thanks very much. I've been Mark. <laughs> we've, talk, we've talked quite a lot we have about talked it before, about, haven't we? Yeah, we've we have, talked at yeah. great length about the Happiness mm. Patrol in the past. And to be honest, 
we've mentioned it a bunch of times in this episode already. Just trying to think if there's anything. I mean, I don't think we've ever mentioned the cast before, but the cast of the Happiness mm. Patrol is yeah. absolutely to die for. Yeah, Ooh, I think some of the Warrior Girls are a little bit dodgy. I think the standard of acting in Greatest Show is better than Happiness. I really do. Oh no, I wouldn't say so. Mm. And of course, the thing about the Warrior Girls is they were all supposed to be a little bit older and a little bit over made up to compensate for the fact that they were older and that kind of thing. They were supposed to be slightly decrepit. I thought um, the one who teamed up with Ace um, was quite good. Oh, is that um, the girl from Frontios? It is, isn't it? Yes. Mm, yes, can't yeah. remember her name. Uh, yeah, I've forgotten her name as well. That's awful, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's dreadful, dreadful. <laughs> but and you, you get go. John Normington again, don't you? Oh, yeah. Briefly. I know, and he's wonderful. Um, mm. Okay, two more things to mention about this. When I first watched it, I hated it. And re-watching it and having grown to absolutely adore it, I realised the thing I had the biggest problem with as a kid was the speed of the uh, go-kart things. Yeah. You could easily outdistance them by just walking fast, <laughs> let alone running. So they didn't seem anything threatening <laughs> in them at all whatsoever, which reminded me actually of the the cleaners in Paradise Towers. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big problem with it. And um, the other thing is the music. How wonderful is the music? And that is a wonderful example of them doing something a bit different with the music during yeah. season 25. Mm. I think it's perhaps the most interesting. And I think the guy standing on the corner playing the harmonica, I think that just really sets oh, yeah. the tone really nicely. Mm. And they keep coming back to that. Yeah. I know there's this, this story about where they wanted to transmit it in black and white. I think that would have been nice if they'd started in black and white and then faded into colour so you get that nice intro into it. Mm-hmm. Which they did, to be fair, in the two doctors, yeah. and in the two doctors that lead, it, at least it made sense to do mm-hmm. that. For the Happiness Patrol, there wouldn't have been a narrative reason to do that, no, so I it would just that. have, it would just just have come across as doing it for the sake of it. Really. Uh, it's a fallacy, isn't it, about um, them doing an animated episode? I mean, they never would have done that. I don't know where that. No, where, where how did would that they come have from? Ordered that? Now, urban legends, urban myths, really. Yeah. Isn't it? Mm. Yes. So. Happiness Patrol. Mark? What can you say about it that we haven't said already? Um, a stellar cast. Um, a great story. Um, I know this has been mentioned many, many times before. It's, it's kind of a, a political edge Allegory. to it. Yeah. With uh, Helen A. Or Margaret T. as she probably should be called. <laughs> um, yeah. Fifi, at the time, I seem to remember not being very impressed with but perhaps being a bit older and a bit soppier i think it's quite cute now do you know the uh, political thing reminds me more mm. of 1984 than it does of thatcher's government and the whole you have to be happy otherwise we're going to punish you i think mm. you know yes obviously thatcher was going on at the time but you could read that as a metaphor for just about any kind of sort of dictatorship or that kind of political state, really. Mm. You do what we thing... say, or you're in trouble. Sorry, yeah. go on. I was going to say, the other thing that's really memorable is obviously the Candyman. Mm. Yeah, and of course, the Candyman was intended in the script to be a human being, yeah. who just is the guy who makes the makes the sweet stuff. But 
I and think they turn him into a psychotic Bertie Bassett. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's a stroke of genius. Yeah, I think oh, it's it's a memorable monster. Mm. It's one of those things once seen, never forgotten. And most yeah. people would say for the wrong reason, but I don't <laughs> think so. Plus, whether you think it's for the right reason or the wrong reason, it has still worked if it's done that. It's um, yeah. it's taking Barney the dinosaur to its logical conclusion. This horrible, contrived happiness. Oh, we're all having fun! Isn't this great? You know, and it it does take it to its logical conclusion, where it becomes it goes around in a full circle and becomes sinister. Hmm. It's horrible. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I love it. And and if Doctor Who can't be a caricature of real life, then what can be? Why shouldn't it? Why shouldn't mm. it go to those levels every now and again? Um, mm. I mean, basically, the Happiness Patrol is not so very far removed from the Macro Terror back in the 1960s. Yeah. And it doesn't feel remotely unlike several uh, William Hartnell stories either, the Sensorites perhaps in particular. And obviously, I'm not necessarily comparing it to the best of the past, but what I'm Mm. pointing out by saying that is it feels, you know, like I said at the start of this episode, that this season... You know, people look at, in this season, Silver Nemesis and Remembrance of the Daleks and say those two are the stories that celebrate the past, that are the 25th anniversary stories. But I think Happiness Patrol does in the sense that it feels like it's celebrating the black and white era of Doctor Who. And, you know, Simon's comment about did they really actually talk about film, you know, broadcasting it in black and white ties in with that absolutely and of course like i said greatest show feels like it's an episode a story about i've been listening to too many american podcasts haven't i <laughs> it feels like it's a story about the series yeah uh, i you know, um, i've been watching degree. a lot of recons lately and i've recently watched um the macro terror i totally see where you're coming from on that there are a lot of similarities mm. hey i'll tell you what might be really interesting mm. take a load of screen snaps of happiness patrol uh, fade out the colour and uh, stick <laughs> together a recon of the Happiness Patrol and see what you make of that. Nice. <laughs> um, should we have another email, perhaps even two, if I can fit them in and then get yeah, on? Yeah, go on in. Uh, this is from David Carrington, who, again, I'm pretty sure has not written in before. Dear JR and the others, he says. Anyone want to comment? Thanks, David. Hello. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a relatively new... This is quite a long one, so I'll try and whip through it. He says, I'm a relatively new listener and some of the associated podcasts you've been involved with, but I've managed to devour a fair amount of them in the past six weeks or so, loving the show, broadening my knowledge and understanding of Doctor Who, but also you four are just an enjoyable listener yourselves. Oh, Uh, bless him. uh, There's a nice family dynamic between you all. JR as the in-control matriarch. Does he mean patriarch? (laughs) No, I think he means matriarch. <laughs> Mark as the... It's your, oh, you your moobs. That's what's doing it. Mm. Mark as a slightly disinterested father figure, with Simon <laughs> and Lee as the older and younger children, respectively. Or perhaps I'm just reading too much into this. <laughs> it's a shame Lee wasn't here, but he's got it right, though, hasn't he? Anyway, I've just finished listening to the last couple of episodes and was delighted to hear your reactions to Peter Capaldi's unveiling. I even did a little whoop to Mark's comment on The Crow Road in the Hinchcliffe episode as the Ian Banks adaptation was my first thought when Peter Capaldi was revealed. It was the first thing I'd noticed him in when I watched it in 
Uh, but I watched it at the age of 16 or 17, and I'm hoping that his doctor will have elements of Uncle Rory, the slightly bohemian and permissive uncle whose yeah, mysterious disappearance drives the narrative of the novel, the adaptation. Mm. Yeah. Whilst Capaldi is obviously 20 years on from the cool uncle of the adaptation, it would be interesting to see that free-spirited element of the character combined with the darker Tucker aspects that people were expecting. As J.R. pointed out, he really is playing against type in The Thick of It. I'd like to see his doctor as the friendly ear, the one who permits you to challenge authority, the cool uncle, knowing professor, inspiring teacher. And it would be Disinterested nice if... dad. Mm. No, that's uh, you there, Mark. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> and it would be nice, continues David, if the 50th anniversary episode and subsequent regeneration, I really can't see how the special and the Christmas story are going to be independent of each other, could see the doctor dealing with his time war grief and moving into something new. We could end up seeing Doctor's 9 to 11 period as his sort of World War 1, World War 2 survivor period before Doctor 12 enters a 1950s sort of stroke 60s period of liberation, enjoying life and the universe while perhaps touching something more mysterious and darker that doesn't necessarily have to be about dealing with grief. Actually, just to cut in on him there, I think he's probably more in line with how I'd like to see Peter Capaldi and how I'd expect to see Peter Capaldi. And here's another reason why. If John Hurt really is an unknown doctor that comes between the 8th and the ninth, and Peter Capaldi therefore really is the 13th body the Doctor's had, and if he knows that, and if he's expecting not to regenerate at the end of this body, there's two ways he can go. He can either go into deep despair and spend the next three series or whatever in the depths of despair, and that would be like David Tennant's specials spread oh, God, no. spread across 40 episodes, or else he could accept it, realise that this is the end, and just turn into a sort of happy-go-lucky characterization of the Doctor, mm. wherein, okay, it's going to end at some point, but you might as well enjoy it while you've still got it. Mm. And I think he's such a versatile actor. I think he can mm. really do whatever he wants with it. Mm. And I think he can make it quite a complex character. Oh, absolutely. But I'd like to see that aspect brought to the forefront, I think. Mm. I don't want a Doctor to be dark all the time and every week. I think that would be a nightmare. I don't think it would go that way, to be honest. There's, I can't um, see it going that way. There's word of him keeping his Scottish accent as well, isn't there? Yeah, and I, I, I don't suspect have a problem he, with that. No, I suspect he probably will. Maybe tone it down slightly. Yeah. Anyway, David carries on. I think there will be an element of preparation towards, or directly dealing with, depending on who John Hurt is, the maxing out of regenerations. And that could lead the Doctor into a new and interesting place, looking forward instead of back. Would he want to prolong his life if he could, or if he had to? What would that mean for someone who is more than a millennium old? Would he feel obliged to, in order to protect the universe from its dangers? Would he even find a new lease of life? I've seen so much, but there's infinitely more to explore. I was wondering whether moving on from the Time War might allow for a return of Gallifrey, but in a limited capacity. For example, he might find that in order to get over the regeneration limit, he actually needs Gallifrey or Gallifreyan artefacts to do this. 
so finds himself freeing them from the Time Lock and bringing them back, but on his terms, finding a way to redeem the Time Lords from whatever they had become in the war, but never quite managing to reform that staid and stagnant society he always tried to escape. I always thought the depiction of the Doctor as the wide-eyed rebel escaping his dull and stagnant homeworld reflected a very 60s, 70s sensibility, and bringing some of that dynamic back with Gallifrey's return would fit a newly, with a newly liberated Doctor. Anyway, thanks again for the great show. It's a great listen and thoroughly enjoyable. And that's from David Carrington. Brilliant. Thank and you, David. I like to say that was a lovely, thoughtful email. Yeah. And yeah. I agree yeah. with rather a lot of it. I, I don't think the Time Lords will be back in Moffat's reign. I know he, he well and truly thinks they're dead. He He's he's mm. had enough of that. That's, he's drawn a line under it. But that's not to say the next show. Ah, but lesson one, Moffat lies. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, this is true. This is so true. who knows? Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is there is, I, I don't know if this is, is it spoilers? Is it spoilers? Have, has anyone seen the um, page from Paul Cornell's new Doctor Who strip that they've no, released? No, I haven't actually. No. Do you want to know? Oh, he says something about the John Hurt Doctor, doesn't he? There is a, there's a painting that's been mentioned in a previous story that he wrote. And there is actually a painting... Uh, I think it's an Andy Warhol uh, that depicts all the different doctors, and there is and a, John Hurt is or isn't there? There is a silhouetted gap on the painting between the eighth and ninth doctors. Ah, oh, interesting. And Matt so, Smith in that interview with Jonathan Ross said something about paintings, didn't he? Hmm. So there you go. That fits together. Hmm. So I like, and you know, I don't think that Matt Smith's Doctor at the end of the name of the Doctor would have described John Hurt as one of his regenerations, one of an embodiment of him, if it hadn't been true, because what reason would he have to lie at that point? Mm. So I think all these people who are saying, oh, what will John Hurt ultimately prove to be? You know, I think we know. I think we've been told. Yeah. I don't think the story's going to be about that. I think the story's going to be about something else, and it just happens to have his doctor in it. And maybe by the end of the story, they will come to some kind of uh, c- conclusion, some kind of closure about this eight and a half doctor, whatever you want to call him. But I don't think there's going to be any question about the fact that he is the eight and a half doctor. Mm. Anyway, that's an interesting thought. I do have a few more emails, but I think we'd better save them for next time because Mark's got to get up in the morning. Indeed. Mm. So... I have closed my emails and we shall call it a night. So I don't know what we're doing next time, but I'm sure it'll be something absolutely fascinating. <laughs> and I'd just like to recommend that the viewers tune in and make sure to listen to that podcast. It's going to be a goodie. Did you just say viewers? Yeah. Oh, my God, Mark, as if the rest of what I was saying wasn't ridiculous enough already. Well, well people <laughs> might have cardboard cutouts of us and they move the mouths as we talk. Oh, my goodness. Until next time, I was JR. I was Mark. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Mm-hmm.